Well, hello and welcome. My name is Guy Stevens. I'm the founder and executive director of the Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint. I started the Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint to raise awareness about the issue of restraint and seclusion in schools across the nation. Uh, the organization, the Alliance, advocates for legislative changes to reduce and eliminate the practices of restraint and seclusion, and ultimately to make our schools safer for students, teachers, and staff. Today, I am very excited to announce this new workshop series that we're kicking off today. Uh, the series is intended to help support parents, teachers, and others during these really challenging times. We have an amazing lineup over the next coming uh, few weeks, and I'm really thrilled to begin today with our special guest. I do want to let you know a couple things as we're getting started here. Uh, first of all, I want to let you know that we're going to be taking questions at the end of the presentation. We have a lot of time built in for questions and, and really want to engage in an active session of uh, questions and answers. Also, this event will be available to either view or listen to later. It'll be available on Facebook, YouTube, as also as an audio podcast. So before I introduce you to our uh, guest today, I want to introduce you to my co-host, uh, Beth Tolley. Uh, Beth is the Director of Education Strategy at the Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint. Uh, Beth retired in 2018 from a leadership position in the Alliance, uh, excuse me, in, in Virginia's lead agency for early intervention for infants and toddlers. Her experience uh, as a parent and grandparent of children who have had or have behavioral challenges has fueled her passion to improve the lives of other vulnerable children and their families through education, mutual support, and advocacy. So welcome, Beth. Thank you. So Beth, you had introduced me to the amazing work of, of Mona Delahook, and, and I couldn't be more excited to have had the opportunity to uh, read Mona's work and, and learn more about it. I was wondering if you could go ahead and get us started today by introducing our viewers and listeners to Mona. That would be my pleasure. So Mona is an internationally known author and speaker. Um, she's a licensed clinical psychologist um, with more than 30 years experience working with infants while well, she works with the parents, infants, adults, youth, um, mostly who've had behavioral challenges, uh, often cha challenges that um, challenge their families and the people around them. And I was introduced to Mona through her first book. I'm going off the track. I'm going off what she gave us because I got to tell you how I met her. <laughs> I met her through her first book, which was just wonderful, um, which was um, the book Social and Emotional Development and Early Intervention, A Skills Guide for Working with Children. Um, and when I read it, I, I felt like that was when it was during my last nine months at, at the lead agency for early intervention. And I felt like everybody in early intervention needed this book. And what I loved about it was uh, Mona. Um, talked about how all of us needed to understand mental health for all of us working, touching kids and families um, of infants and toddlers needed to understand mental health for kids. And she also emphasized the importance of interdisciplinary work. Um, and then as we continued our connection, the most brilliant book she wrote that needs to be in the hands, first I said of every parent and then every professional and then every school teacher and then every principal and then every legislator and then every government person. <laughs> the probably, probably everybody gets us there. Yeah, think, everybody you know. gets it. Everybody that deals with anybody <laughs> should, should probably yeah, read that's it. Beyond <laughs> yeah. behaviors, 
uh, using compassion, and I think that's the key thing, and, and brain science. Of course, I've reversed those to understand and solve children's behavioral challenges. And she's reversed those, not children's challenging behaviors, but children's um, behavioral challenges. So um, uh, Mona can tell you more if she wants, but I just want to, um, my main thing was to comment on what an impact she has on everyone um, that meets her or reads her work. She also has a blog that takes everything that happens in the schools, in the news, and she comments on it through her blog to help us understand how we can see this through a different paradigm. And I think that's the beauty of her work, how she helps us understand this. Is, these are not bad kids, these are not bad parents. We need to understand what's going on. So that's the beauty of what Mona does. She takes the complex science and she makes it understandable to all of us. So I'm not going to say any more because she's got a lot to talk to us about. So I'll turn it over to you, Mona. Thank you, Beth. And, and, and welcome, Mona. We we're very excited to have you here. And everybody out there, please join me in welcoming Mona. We're going to go ahead and pull up. She's got a, a fantastic presentation to run through with us today. And we're going to go ahead and pull that up. And Mona, let you go ahead and take it away. Okay. Thank you so much, Beth. I, I couldn't imagine a more... Uh, stellar and humbling introduction. So thank you so much. I am thrilled to be with you today. I was looking at my calendar and uh, on my on my calendar that was before uh, the quarantine, I was scheduled to be in the air flying to Kansas City in the middle of the country um, for a couple of conferences that were supposed to be this weekend. So I am really happy so that I can be with you here today instead. Uh, makes me uh, feel less isolated from um, all the exciting work that I was doing with traveling. So thank you for having me. Thank you so much. And what a time this is. Um, it's interesting that a lot of my work has to do with uh, Dr. Porges's polyvagal theory. And in the polyvagal theory, it's really um, been described as the neuroscience of safety. And if we think about what's happening right now in our world, um, that our, our basic core sense of, uh, of physical safety in many ways is threatened. So I think that the principles that we are going to be talking about are were important before and right now, probably more than ever. So thank you. And I'll just, make a, uh, you know, a brief presentation of some of, of, of the thoughts I have. And then I really look forward to my favorite part of these talks, and that is interacting with you, uh, fielding questions and having a conversation. So for now, uh, let me just say that over three and a half million students uh, are suspended from school uh, each year in, in the United States, and that's from the NCES, uh, NCES uh, statistical uh, bank, including 250 preschoolers who, before um, school ended this year, uh, were suspended and expelled at the rate of about 250 students a day, and that's likely an underestimate. So we have a problem, as Beth uh, implied, and that is we really don't have a roadmap across our professions, uh, across education, mental health, social work, the juvenile justice system, to really understand what underlies behavioral challenges. And that is feeding a lot of these numbers 
Um, and those numbers represent children and teenagers and young adults who are misunderstood and often labeled um, with uh, diagnostic uh, labels and categories suggestive of the paradigm that we look at now, and that's more of a medical model. And one of the reasons uh, is that in our education and special education systems, the training, that is the graduate school training, how we train our teachers, uh, typically doesn't include uh, education in neurophysiology or social emotional development. And yet these are two key factors in not only behavioral challenges, but how we are in the world, how we present in the world. And so um, that was the topic. Uh, I was interested in writing um, a book for my IEP teams about social and emotional development many years ago. And then in um, uh, 2015, I wrote a, a book to hand to my IEP teams and it uh, it was um, well received. And so we published it. And just this idea that trying to get us all on the same page and have a common language across our disciplines in how we understand children. Instead of having students uh, chopped up into separate pieces like speech and language and social emotional and um, occupational functioning and physical um, uh, physical domains, we kind of have a language that crosses across all of our disciplines. So let me ask you um, a, a, a question. There was a very interesting parent survey that was done a few years ago. And it had to do with asking parents about when they thought children have the impulse control to resist the desire to do something wrong. And so think in your mind, you can see this, how many of you think it might be 18 months or 36 months or maybe 42 to 48 months? That is kind of having that ability to uh, hold back your your um, behaviors and your and your emotions or or titrate them. Well, what they found was that fifty six percent of parents believe that children have the impulse control to resist the desire to do something forbidden before the age of three. And within that group, thirty six percent of parents believe that children have under the age of two have that ability. When in actuality, the ability to really reliably control one's emotions and behaviors begins to develop at around three to four years old. So that reliable um, control what, that comes from an area of the brain known, known as the prefrontal cortex that, that can calm down an impulse starts in late toddlerhood. But guess what? It continues all the way up through early adulthood. So what this means is that we have something called uh, an expectation gap. We simply expect students to do more than they actually can do. And when we have an expectation gap, we have this uh, big difference between our hopes 
and beliefs and expectations for a student or a child and again what they are able to what they are able to do in their own um, intentional system meaning their uh, their volitional control their overt control so I'm imagining that uh, many of you ha are home with your children um, and and are homeschooling um, witnessing uh, this expectation gap where you're noticing that something that your child may have been able to do or yourself even uh, before the quarantine that was relatively easy now is becoming a huge challenge. Or maybe there are more uh, dis uh, eruptions, more tantrums, more meltdowns. And we can put that under the category in for many of us under this expectation gap category because all of us right now have lower thresholds. We have lower thresholds for the ability to stay calm and uh, connected between our mind and body and use our brain to talk ourselves out of things or prevent ourselves from saying or doing things that we don't really want to do because our nervous systems are under stress. And basically, I think this is the first time in my lifetime uh, that I can ever remember that the whole world, the whole world's nervous systems are under stress because uh, the COVID-19 uh, virus has not escaped. Um, nobody has escaped from that situation. And when we, we are under stress, the ability to do what our higher level ability is becomes very um, less predictable and less robust. So what I'm recommending that we need to do is we need to shift the lens. And when we shift our lens, we're going to be moving away from managing students and children's behaviors. And that older paradigm had to do with really kind of compliance and non-compliance. So when we view a child's behavior or student's behavior as either good or bad, disordered or not or not disordered it leads to a focus on um, having a kind of a dualistic uh, bad or good situation that leads to something like rewards or consequences and taking an action to teach children uh, without regard for the adaptive nature of behaviors and that is one of the reasons I love challenging behaviors <laughs> and I love helping parents and teachers with students with challenging behaviors because rather than thinking they're vilifying them and thinking those behaviors mean something bad, I just feel like they mean something so useful. They tell us about the nervous system of that child and student. And in fact, um, what I have learned uh, from Dr. Stephen Porges, who is one of the uh, like I said, one of the uh, most esteemed neuroscientists in the world who has developed something called the polyvagal theory, which is a way of understanding the autonomic nervous system. And the autonomic nervous system is really the one of our uh, connections between our, our body and our brain. 
So we can think of it as an information highway through our body and our brain, through the vagal nerve, which uh, basically contributes to and, and in some ways causes uh, our behaviors. And so when behaviors are looked at through this uh, nervous system friendly way of, of, of looking at things, we can see that behaviors are actually an adaptation to cues that the child is experiencing inside their body, internal needs, sensations, thoughts, emotions, uh, physical sensations, what we might uh, be calling interoceptive um, sensations. And so that behaviors have this adaptation uh, uh, component to them. And we can look at them not being just simple, willful misbehavior. And so that is one of the things that I, I'm excited about looking at and helping us understand that we can move from the focus on the child or teenager to a focus on relationships. Because many of our behaviors that we are so very concerned about in a child or a teenager have to do with shifts in the child's, what we call the child's physiological state. And I'll explain what that means um, in, in a moment. But when we move from the focus on the child to a focus on relationships in human beings, what we know from the polyvagal theory is that social engagement is the pathway to helping these challenging behaviors that are caused by a deeply felt sense of unease in our um, autonomic state. <clears throat> so we move from a focus on behaviors to a focus on the internal state of the child and ourselves as parents as a measure of that brain-body connection. Excuse me. <laughs> and it's an exciting shift. So now um, I'll introduce you to uh, this. If, if that sounded kind of complicated, I'm sorry. And ask me questions. But let's, let's pull back a bit and just think about behaviors again. Because what we are, all, all we have is our behaviors, right? A behavior is basically the way we move our body through talking, through our muscle movements, through what we can see, okay? So... Many of you are familiar with the, uh, what I described in Beyond Behaviors as the developmental iceberg. And that is that we look at the tip of the iceberg, that 10% or so of an iceberg above the waterline is what you see. So that, that would be our behaviors, okay? That is the, what you're seeing um, in your child or in yourself that is visible. But as you know, 90% or so of uh, that big chunk of ice is below the surface and it's invisible. So when we look below uh, the surface and when we go beneath that big iceberg, we see the causes, the triggers and the underlying pathways to behaviors. And uh, in this, in this uh, slide, you'll see that something called physiological state is the the, on the top, and it's there for a reason. Let me just talk about that for a moment. Uh, when we are calm and alert, when we are able to think, when we're able to play, 
when we're able to have conversations with each other and joke with each other, this is when our body, our physiological state, well, just think of it as your mind-body connection. Think about that. That we A couple of other words for physiological state is our um, emotional state, our uh, emotional regulation. There's some different words that we could put on, but in the words of polyvagal theory, physiological state is kind of the, the condition of your autonomic nervous system. And there's one condition of that that's called the social engagement pathway. I call it the green pathway in the book. And in that pathway, you do have control over what you do and say and over your behaviors. But when a human being senses subconsciously or consciously, but mostly subconsciously, that something is not right, something is threatening or risky, either in another person or in the environment, then the state shifts, the physiological state shifts into one of defense. And when we're defensive, we aren't playing anymore. We aren't talking nicely. We aren't having opinions and debates. When we are sensing threat, think of the word movement. We are running. We're running away. We're trying to escape. We may be hitting or um, we may be tensing our body up. There's a, there's a whole range. We may be yelling, kicking, spitting. But as the um, movements become more extreme, uh, that is a sign of the state shifting to what we know as the fight or flight system, the sympathetic nervous system. And in, uh, in the language of beyond behaviors, I call it the red pathway. So we have the green pathway of calm, the red pathway is this default when we sense threat. And many of our children's behaviors, if not all of the behaviors that we would consider challenging and very um, concerning, have to do with shifts in physiological state. So there's a lot more I, I can say about that. But I think for now, I'd just like to say that what we have traditionally thought of as challenging behaviors as a child um, willfully misbehaving or having a disorder like oppositional defiant disorder or a conduct disorder are we can look through the lens of the polyvagal theory as having to do with shifts in our physiology and so we are bringing the body into the question and it really helps us become, I think, become more compassionate to ourselves and to our children because now we're differentiating that a child isn't always doing something to get negative attention. So that explanation is also why our go-tos are often wrong. Uh, we blame a child. We may say it's a diagnosis, it's oppositional defiant disorder, uh, I've heard parents get blamed in IEP meetings, like, well, maybe they're not consistent enough at home. And uh, that is really, I haven't, haven't quite ever found that, to be honest with you. I think that blaming parents or blaming the child is the more outdated model. And what we want to look at something different. 
So this is why our go-tos are often misleading. When we blame um, a what we think is the child's uh, intentional willful activity, then we use timeouts and we use positive and negative reinforcement schedules. And I have found that for the most challenging behaviors and for our most vulnerable students and children, and these are the students, by the way, who are most often subjected to uh, these outdated and harmful um, practices such as seclusion and restraint. And just now, let me just thank Guy and Beth and the um, Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint for your work. What you've done in the last short amount of time that you've been up is incredible. You're making our world a better place. And I fully, um, I fully support you. So we can understand now why these positive and negative reinforcement schedules are wrong, because our our reasoning behind these behaviors, beneath behaviors, shifts. And instead of blaming a child's will, such as they're getting negative attention, we are going to be moving into um, asking another very essential question. And that essential question is, does the, does the student even have that developmental ability to manage these big shifts and changes in their physiology in order to control their emotions and behaviors. And it is a developmental process that takes many years and each person is on their own trajectory of that journey. And if you've had a difficult life, if you have been misunderstood, if you have differences in brain wiring, if you have a neurodiverse brain and people have misunderstood you, or if you have been um, in, if you have had many uh, broken attachments in your life, and you didn't have enough adults there to see you and to protect you, all of these things will um, have an impact on our ability to control our emotions and behaviors compassionately, because our body, our nervous system, knows how to take care of ourselves. And in those challenging behaviors that we may have uh, developed out of this survival instinct, um, that is a heroic example of how difficult it is to be a human. And instead of vilifying behaviors, this is why I'm very um, passionate about helping people see that behaviors have such an adaptive meaning for each child. And that does not mean that we don't have good boundaries and to keep people safe. It doesn't mean any of that. It just means that we can understand them from a new lens. So I just have a little, um, I'll just go on for a little bit longer, but I have an uh, example here from education. And I was in a school before school uh, closed down um, earlier in the year, uh, a very well-intentioned teacher who, and an amazing teacher, but um, had this, uh, was trying to teach a student a lesson, a student uh, who had a diagnosis of ADHD, and he was not able to control himself, and he was bouncing around. And the teacher said, well, if you don't control your behaviors, the whole class will have to miss five minutes of recess. And 
you know, I was sitting in the back of a classroom and inside I was just like, oh, I felt so bad for this child because I knew that his inability to control his body was bottom up, meaning body up and autonomic, a result of a shift in physiological state and not a purposeful misbehavior and not a matter of control. And yet he was shamed for it. And this is what I want our educators to understand, um, that this evaluative framework was developed before the decade of the brain. And the decade of the brain and understanding the autonomic nervous system gives us a whole new framework, what we call a neurodevelopmental framework. And this is what we can bring into our systems and into our IEPs and into our homes to understand, better understand our children. Um, so let me see here. Let me go to uh, a few more slides and then I'll talk about COVID for a second. The way humans develop emotionally, how do we develop emotionally? And we develop emotionally through what is called co-regulation. So think about a little tiny baby and our little babies are born completely helpless. They are, have the ability to gaze up at the, at the eye of their, of their mommy and their, uh, their daddy, their caregiver. And they have their hearing is developed and they, you know, so they have this, they have vision up to about a foot and, and, and they can hear, but their, their motor systems are so uh, underdeveloped. They need us to co-regulate, to, to help them feel um, calm when they cry, to feed them when they're hungry, to change them when they're, when they're uh, need, need a diaper change, to rock them when they need movement. So basically humans develop emotionally through warmly attuned relationships. And it, that doesn't mean just babies. It means all humans. We all need each other. And so this idea of viewing behaviors in this brain-body paradigm, when we are bringing the brain and body together, we're not just understanding, oh, that's the brain. Uh, the child's doing that because their brain is telling them to. When we are understanding that this brain-body is wise and it holds wisdom, and when a child has challenging behaviors, the wisdom of the body is taking over. So you might be able to understand a child um, running away or bouncing on um, around the room, even when the teacher is, is asking them to please stop, as that child's heroic ability to adapt to that environment. And when a child moves from feeling safe subconsciously to their body feeling unsafe, please remember that the next thing that happens is movement. So they may be looked at as mouthing off or disobeying, but what they're doing is following the cues of their autonomic nervous system, which is the fight or flight pathway. And when that is ignited and you don't have the ability yet, you haven't developed that ability to control your behaviors and emotions with your, as a, uh, Dan Siegel and uh, Tina Bryson call your upstairs brain, your prefrontal cortex. It doesn't mean that you're a behavior problem. 
So in this slide here, I say, when we view behaviors comprehensively uh, in this brain-body paradigm, we will come to understand the difference between emphasizing behavioral compliance and building the capacity for emotional regulation that underlies behavioral control. And that's a mouthful, and I apologize. And that's why it took 300 pages to explain kind of the science behind it. But a simple way to understand it is that the most important tool in our toolbox is human connection. We are made for connection. And we develop the skills for executive function, for being able to uh, be citizens of, of our communities through human connection and through relationships. So um, now uh, let me transition. I can't wait to hear your, your questions and comments, but let me just say a few words about COVID, this COVID situation. And what it means, again, uh, the profound, and I can't emphasize enough, profound need for human beings to feel safe is uh, kind of a, 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 a dietary need, so to speak, for human beings is to feel safe. And we are constantly surveying the environment through uh, a process called neuroception, which is basically a safety sensor. And through this process, we can um, understand that, well, sorry, through this process, we can understand that when there are cues of life threat all around us, when our, we walk outside and there aren't any cars on, on the street, or if we look outside and see people wearing masks, which we must do now, there are visual cues of life threat all around us. And what happens when human beings experience visual cues of life threat? We start to have a weaker neural platform. And a neural platform basically is just our, our body-brain connection, the strength of our green zone, the strength of feeling calm, feeling connected, feeling um, in our bodies is compromised through the fear of life threat. So my go-to phrase um, has been a couple things. One is go easy on yourself, go easy, go easy on yourself and on your ch children. And your ability, our ability, our collective ability, I don't know if you've experienced it, but I know I certainly have, to control our emotions is going to be all over the place because our basic sense of safety is threatened. And we're hanging on the news and we're hoping that, uh, you know, the vaccine or, or medication um, answers will be there. So at least there will be fewer hospitalizations. And we're all uh, hoping that uh, and wishing for little, anything, big or small, um, cues of safety. And that's what we're that's what we're looking for. But go easy on yourself, A and B. Um, that doesn't mean to just throw everything out, 
the door in terms of predictability and um, having having a schedule that you can count on because our also our, our nervous system craves expectancy and craves predictability so it is a good a good thing for our kids if you do have a schedule and try to follow it because our nervous systems like that we calm down through um, a sense of safety and security so I could go on, um, but I think that for now, I would love to uh, see what arose. I gave you a lot of, uh, a lot of information, and um, I, can, I can go back to the slides, but I would just uh, like to open it up now. I'd like to hear your questions. Ask me if I went, I'm sorry I, I went so fast. I'd uh, love to see who's here and... Um, have a dialogue with you all. Mona, this is really fantastic. Um, and I hope everybody out there that's watching this uh, just really enjoys it as much as, as I have. Um, your work resonated with me the first time I, I read it and, and light bulbs began going off. Um, you know, it's interesting, you know, talking about, and, and I'll get to a couple of questions here that we have queued up, but it's interesting talking about how this, this crisis impacts things and that, yeah. you know, kids are now home that would have been in school otherwise. And from, from the connections and from the, um, you know, kind of the members of our community, we, we hear a lot of different things, some of which are very interesting. Uh, some children that were having a lot of difficulty in school environments and being restrained and secluded and, and having behavioral escalations are now at home and actually doing much better. Um, you know, perhaps <laughs> perhaps a, a difference in environment, a difference in threat. Yeah, I'd be curious on, on what your thoughts are on that. And, and of course, others are probably having more challenges because they've lost some of the structure. So could you talk a little bit about that difference and, and uh, how that might be impacting things? Oh, it's a great question. And it has a lot of different pieces to it. So let me, let me uh, unpack it just a little bit. I have also, I've, I've heard the same from many families um, and, many, and many students that uh, they have felt that they're enjoying this, that they're getting more time with their mom and dads. Um, that they are they are having less um, meltdown, fewer meltdowns, and I think that in in uh, some of our fam for some of our our, our families um, who have various resources, internal, financial, whatever the, of the resources to make this um, a, a an adventure in in staying together, and and where their their resources aren't too stretched. Um, I've heard that children, uh, many children are doing better and feeling um, more connected, more grounded and more green. I know also that it seems like pets, dogs are loving this too, you know, because a lot of happy puppies are getting held more, you know, and, and because people are home. So um, there's, there's some, that, that is kind of a proof and concept about this powerful, safe, sense of safety um, and how maybe some of our children who are so misunderstood at school are at home where they're actually not feeling under threat as much. And so this natural movement of those behaviors, which are stress behaviors, stress responses. 
And, and potentially you can see a challenge coming in the future when, when kids are going back to school. Uh, you know, you brought up kind of the, the puppy example. And, you know, I can imagine a puppy now that's just kind of you know, around family all the time having separation anxiety or mm -hmm. having difficulties as, as the owner returns to work. And I can imagine the same kind of thing happening with our children as, as they are in this one environment. You know, I mean, may, maybe part of it's analogous with a a summer break, but certainly there's a lot more that's going on here. So I think we're we're definitely going to have to have you uh, back as things get back to normal to figure <laughs> out how we can how we can how we can how 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 can we help kids to uh, kind of move back into the situation they were in and, and make improvements there. Yeah, no, it may it may not be the same when they go back. The other thing that I hear is how different it is across, even from one district to the other, which may be contiguous in the same state, that there's great, um, some places are saying, don't worry about the academics, um, prioritize relationships. The kids will make up the academics, let that go. And other places are, and some parents are saying, I don't, I'm not worrying about the academics. I'm just taking care of my kids. But other places, other schools are saying, they're piling on the work and they're saying, we can't let this go. And here are three packets of information. And the, and the family is saying, I've got four kids in four different places. And my husband and I are both working still. And so there are so many different scenarios of what families are going through and what kids are going through that it's very, very challenging. Yeah, on, on that note, I want to begin to queue up a couple of the questions that we have because, uh, Beth, it would be easy for you and I to ask a lot of questions <laughs> here and, and take all of Mona's time. And I certainly want to give a lot of opportunity for people that are watching to ask questions. Uh, we have something here from uh, Linda who says that uh, she has an eight-year-old niece who does not want to see any of her teachers, hides from them on camera and runs away. Uh, she has severe ADHD and father left when she was two years old, doesn't see uh, or talk to her. Teacher says she is lazy, also has writing disorder and hates math. Mom has had mom has ADHD as well and learning disabilities. Uh, suggestions for the team. And I'll, I'll put a question mark there for you. Um, any thoughts? Mm. Uh, well, let me first let me say just a disclaimer, of course, that I can't make um, I can't give uh, solutions for individual children that I haven't seen in person. So just a, uh, my remarks will be general, of course, because I can really only um, comment directly on on children that I students that I know. But uh, it's let, let's just take about uh, some pieces of that. Um, and first of all, just understanding how what valuable information uh, she provided in that question. So one piece of valuable information is in the first sentence. She's hiding from teachers on the screen. Okay. So if the child, if a child is having a reaction, again, think about when we move away, when we run, when we try to hide, when we uh, refuse to look at someone in the eye, when we hold our parents, um, uh, go behind our parents and hold them tight. We don't want to look at another adult. All of those are good signals that somehow the child's nervous system is picking up um, threat in the environment. And I don't mean threat as we know it. What I'm talking about is an acceleration in the sympathetic nervous system. That means that the calmness is going away and we have a fight or flight starting. This is not the child's choice. 
So one thing I would say is when we have children who are refusing to do things or running away from um, either a classroom or a virtual classroom, right? Mm -hmm. That first of all, no, um, this is not meant to be evaluative or um, blaming or shaming teachers whatsoever. Most of you know, if you've heard me talk before, that I believe in a no blame, no shame uh, zone when we talk about how we want to move forward. And so it doesn't mean that it's a bad teacher or anything like that. What it means is that this is a very sensitive nervous system. This is a vulnerable nervous system. So the, the trick is going to be to make it fun. What do we do when we have a child who is having... Uh, uh, we can call it anxiety, but let's let's just call it stress. Who is stressed out at the thought of doing X? We woo them in through our interactions. We make we give them cues of safety. So the um, parent or caregiver, whoever is there with the child, side by side, co-regulating coming together like, whoa, this is, let's do this together. Sweetie, you're not on your own. I'm right here with you. Some sort of messages of the fact that you're not alone and not blaming the child for running away. That's really important that we don't blame a child when they're in a stress response. We have compassion for it. That's a, that's a great response. And, and certainly, I think, uh, something that uh, a lot of us have probably had experience with. And, and, you know, these stressful times just raise the bar for everyone of, of where that stress threshold is. So kind of in a related vein uh, question here, how can we explain to teachers and administrators that our child doesn't have the skills to self-regulate? Uh, and how can that be incorporated into the school day? Mm. You know, million dollar question. And, and that is uh, uh, that is why I why I do the work I do. Uh, it's a great question, Takara. Um, thank you for asking it. So, like I said before, the language of regulation, the re the language of how children regulate in terms of neurodevelopment, meaning children gain regulation through the multiple, multiple years of interactions with adults they trust, meaning parents and caregivers first, but then of course teachers, re help regulate state, which helps the student regulate their behaviors. Right now, when uh, a student's behaviors are the focus of the, of the interest and not the student's physiological state regulation, their emotional regulation, you're ending up with situations of millions of students who are needing more cues of safety in their environment. So uh, the, not to plug my book, I mean, I, in any way, but I I'll wrote it out of desperation. <laughs> I, I was getting ready to do the same. I, you know, and, and in all honesty, have distributed books like this mm -hmm. to IEP teams before. Uh, you know, your book, Dr. Green's book, uh, you know, giving giving books out to your team and finding people that are receptive can always be really, really helpful. Well, and and the reason I included on that in the book, the reason I included so much neuroscience because school districts need to have evidence. I get that they're going to there. It's public money and federal money, and so we want to have 
evidence. And so I give evidence there. I think the short answer to her question is provide the evidence that neuroscience is unequivocal on the fact that relational safety sets the foundation for all learning and development. And we need to keep on hammering that message to our school districts because the, um, as you know, it takes decades for system change to happen. So books like mine and, and other neuroscientists who are doing the work of relational safety, like Dr. Corgis and Dr. Bruce Perry and Dr. Bessel van der Kolk, it hasn't trickled down to education yet. And that's why we are translating it for education. Yeah, with all due respect to educators who are amazing, and I love them. <laughs> yeah, we had another comment from somebody that talked about their school district using seclusion rooms and made that same point about how it's really tough to watch you know these systems that uh, their, their practices aren't working. They're they're using things like restrained seclusion. They're not working yet. They continue to use them, and and that's really difficult. And I think the challenge for all of us is is trying to trying to bring things, um, you know, bring, bring things into the modern research. Yes, you, you do. And I, I will uh, also plug Dr. Um, Ross Green's uh, group, Lives in the Balance. Um, that's a great, uh, oh, such a great resource, parents, livesinthebalance.org. And there, uh, there are frameworks, there are trainings available for schools. Uh, there are, there are um, techniques that you can use instead of seclusion and restraint. We know better, so now we can begin to do better. And this is why um, you are absolutely right. Seclusion and restraint is the outdated model. It did not include an understanding of the nervous system. And we can keep children and their peers safe. We have methods to keep them safe. No one's saying we don't want to... We're going to let them do whatever they want with their bodies. We can still keep students safe without seclusion or restraint. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Mona. <laughs> uh, let's bring up a couple other questions here. Um, you know, and, and some of these, like you mentioned before, may be very specific, but somebody mentions here, Tamara, you know, that her son, um, the autism spectrum, um, you know, as a way of kind of coping, we'll ask a lot of questions to calm himself down, but then isn't really satisfied. And, you know, again, so what, what tips do you have for helping people to, to, to help their kids um, in regulating when they're having difficulty? Oh, that's such a good question. And, and rapid fire questions from children, especially if it's the same question over and over and over or the same topics over and over is that it's a good giveaway that, that uh, there's some, that's the worry system going on there. That is definitely um, kind of the threat response system. And again, a heroic effort of a brain trying to figure it out. His brain is on autopilot. Tell me, tell me, tell me, is it safe? Is it safe? Is it safe? So my general recommendation is in this framework that we talk about that's neurodevelopmental, it's likely that words are not going to be as satisfying for him than other techniques that calm his autonomic nervous system. So I would say for each child, we need to discover those ways that calm down the fight or flight. And that might not be verbal. It might be something like, oh my goodness, there's that question again. How about if we, um, here, come over here and uh, 
you know, and do something that the child likes. Let's just say, for example, that the child likes to bounce on your lap. Let me bounce you on my lap for a second and tell me what the question is again. And so you're adding this component that we call, um, it's not top down, it's bottom up. So we regulate the child's state first. So if you're, if you're ask, if a child is asking questions and giving them the answers isn't sufficient, move to bigger, uh, broader perspective, which is do something fun with the child that they are starting to feel relaxed in their body. So this isn't a question, but this is something that I think we all agree with. Uh, Mona needs to be in every school across America. So we can certainly get your book there. But if, if anybody's working on cloning or uh, anything else to, to get yeah, to there, to do that. It's, it's really so, helpful. So but, but guys, absolutely. guys, there's one that I want to highlight. Sure. Thank you. Um, I, would, I keep fading in and out because I don't know how to do this thing. But anyway, uh, Mona, I want to bring up one that I'm not going to bring up the name. Uh, a very brave person who says that she was she's a parent um, who truly believes and practices connection and co-regulation with both her kids at home and school. Um, and her question is, what suggestions do you have for helping to get buy-in from teachers and administrators in the school? She's just been asked, she must work there too, she's just been asked to resign at her job because she didn't fully implement or support the punitive point system that damages relationships and denies students the help that they need. And I, I just, my heart goes out to her because I understand the position um, that, that she was in and how brave to do what she knew was best um, at, at what cost. Um, so, I think it is such a very difficult um, position to work so hard to do what's best for our kids against such a force. Um, any suggestions? I'd like you to solve this. We've got a few minutes left. Well, you know, I, 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 um, I, I share your your. Uh, deep compassion for, for, for this person. And, um, you know, thank you for standing up for what you feel is right for children is one thing I'd like to say, thank you. And there are so many people behind you um, who, who understand why you did it. Uh, be, and if that's because intuitively it didn't feel right. But I guess the good news, part of the good news, is that they'll they'll probably rehire you once they find out that you, that um, punitive measures are not consistent with what we know about the neurophysiology of human development, mm -hmm. and that is um, you can achieve a goal. Our our current models of behavioral modification and behavioral technologies. While they were very um, cutting edge many, many decades ago when they were brought up, we are, are being replaced by an understanding that punitive measures um, increase levels of anxiety for children and don't solve behavioral challenges. So my heart goes out to her, A, and B, I think that the legions of neuroscientists who are riding the stuff and then people like 
Guy and Beth and myself and Ross Green and uh, so many other people, I can't uh, mention them all, are bringing this information to the general public so that parents can share it. And, um, and, and with, with a, a, an amount of reassurance. Now, let me just say that I am a professional and I have a, a PhD and I have been in so many IEPs where there were polite nods to what I was saying. Yeah, this is true. But then the behavior plan went ahead and included everything that I suggested it didn't have to happen because our schools are entrenched in a model that believes and uh, and is uh, committed to um, dealing with behaviors at a surface level. And so this is something we have to come to grips with. And uh, this, again, it's I think it's one of the reasons we are getting so much traction in my offices and, and, and when, when we do trainings uh, about Beyond Behaviors is that once uh, once we get this information out there, there will be more choices for parents. And in IEPs, they can request that their child uh, have a certain approach that is, that is um, individualized and personalized to their child's mm-hmm. nervous system. Yeah, that, that, that's great. And, and absolutely, yeah. we, we talk a lot about individualized education, but sometimes the solutions that have been used for decades are still the solutions that are used regardless of whether or not they meet an individual's needs. And on mm-hmm. that note, I, I have a great, que- uh, great question here for you uh, from Linda, which is your thoughts on reinforcement systems being used for compliance and on task behaviors. And, and I'll just, you know, kind of add a little piece here that, yeah. you know, I, I have a son that all the sticker charts in the world weren't what was going to um help us. And, you know, I mean, I've learned so much from your work about the importance of, of, of kids first feeling safe before they're able to do so much. So interested in your thoughts here. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, first of all, when people, when people ask why, you know, what do we do when reinforcement schedules don't work? That's, it's a good question because oftentimes reinforcement schedules don't work and especially if they're being used for compliance and on task behaviors. Um, okay, let's just say, number one, that in a way, a smile or a human connection of, oh, thank you, is a reinforcement schedule. So natural face-to-face social engagement interactions in and of themselves are reinforcing for children. And so I don't, I think that we have mechanized them so much that we think that the magic is in the sticker or in the check or in the token, but the magic is in the relationship. It's in that moment when you see another teacher, when you see a teacher or a friend looking at you and recognizing that you took a risk and you did some and and whether or not you got it right it's like great thanks for thanks for being there thanks for showing up so um i think they're overrated i don't think i don't think we need reinforcement schedules because what we need is social engage engagement schedules so let me just give you a little example of what i'm talking about i had heard about uh, a school that was using positive behavioral supports. Have you heard of PBIS? 
So they were using positive behavioral supports and the, and the school got this, um, this technology system whereby students uh, were wearing tags and the, um, and then the teachers or some administrators had these scanners. And if they saw the child do something great, they scanned them so that they could track the um, positive behaviors of the students. And my reaction to that was kind of very um, surprised because it's, imagine a student who does something great, you know, maybe they help a, a peer do something and then the teacher comes up and says, hey, that was great, let me scan you. Versus, wow, I just witnessed that smile on your friend's face and that was beautiful. Hey, come walk with me to walk with me to the classroom. So we've mechanized. We're, I, I understand that they wanted to track positive behaviors, but we need to shift the lens. <laughs> and so um, I, I, I really would love teachers to understand um, and that what the the main um, the best reinforcer in the world is another person who sees you, who witnesses your distress and who witnesses your um, need for them. Human engagement is the most powerful reinforcer, reinforcer in the world. Yeah. Re relationship, relationship, relationship mm -hmm. uh, means so much. Uh, here's another great uh, comment or, or question here um, about examples. So, you know, what are some examples of things that you might include in an IP based on the nervous system? So how can we, how can we take this, this research? How can we take some of the things that we can learn from, uh, from your book and your research and work that into an IEP? Yeah. So um, since IEPs are all about individualized education plans, right? So I just take that word individualized and run with them. So my colleagues and I are, are talking about really uh, using this idea of, you know, have you heard about precision medicine? Mm -hmm. Precision medicine is when you choose a, uh, a treatment that's based on the, the exact needs of the, of the uh, patient. So if we think about personalized uh, medicine, personalized IEPs, then what I, what I do is with parents, um, we basically tabulate the um, stress responses that a child has, and we code them uh, by colors, and, and we have uh, uh, graphing systems where we do that. I, I have them in the book, where we actually explain to the IEP team these are the signals that my child will be showing when their nervous system is starting to go red or starting to detect stress. These are the behaviors you look for. And here are the toolkit. Here's what we want to do when we see the child starting to distress. So we're moving from a language of this is um, what you, how you positively or negatively reinforce a behavior to how do you track the child's regulation? And um, it's, of course, each IEP is different, but the short answer to that question is that there is language that you can use to describe your child's autonomic state, and then you tag the state with what the child needs when they're in that state. So when they're 
when they're in the red pathway, they need these types of supports. When they're, if they're going blue, if they're disengaging or if they're immobilized, these are the types of supports my child needs. And um, so we really individual, we really, we really do personalize it to each child and every child's nervous system is going to vary on what their needs are in real time. Yeah, it's really great. You know, I know uh, Lives in the Balance has a uh, collaborative proactive solutions flavored IEP where they try to integrate some of the things in. Um, you know, if you ever have a room on your list, that would be really fantastic to see, you know, some examples of this in writing that people might be able to to use and, and bring to their their meetings and their IPs. Um, another related question, I'm just going to read part of it here, but it this came from a special educator uh, who was kind of asking about how we get this information into teacher training, uh, kind of knowing the teachers are already strapped for time. And, and that, that to me is one of the, you know, the big questions that Beth and I are always talking about, which mm -hmm. is, how do we get this to education? How do we get this so we're not teaching 20 year old uh, ideas and we're, we're basing things out? Well, we, we do want to treat 20 year old ideas. We, we miss the, somehow we miss the 90s and the decade of the brain and a lot of our education. So, do you have thoughts on how we can better get this into our school systems and, um, you know, get teacher training? Yeah, um, absolutely. But uh, just while I'm while I'm thinking about it for those two tools you were talking about, Guy, uh, to reinforce what you said, Lives in the Balance, CPS has the ALSOP, ALSOP. So Ross Green has that checklist that you can download for free um, that is that you can use in your IEPs. And then my colleague, uh, Monica Osgood at the Profectum Foundation has developed something called an IEP goal bank. Mm -hmm. And they have IEP examples of neurodevelopmentally based IEPs. It's called the IEP goal bank. And you can find out more at profectum.org. Maybe you can put it in the notes um, or somewhere. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. absolutely. That's great. So, so we have these uh, we have these supports available for parents to start bringing into IEPs to um, to educate their teams on and 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 work together to make IEP goals that we all agree on and and it's it can be a wonderful collaborative effort. So um, I believe that the uh, the tidal wave of this whole idea of regulation and understanding the nervous system is about to break through in graduate school for education. So I've had several students in um, psychology graduate school that I'm on their dissertation panels on and educators I think are asking for it. So I'm actually very hopeful. I think there are a few schools, uh, actually I know of um, at least four schools, one of, one of them's in, in the UK, but are using um, my book in graduate school training. So I think that we are, the, the it's, it's being, um, it's kind of like you can't hold back uh, this information. Parents are very, very proactive about it, but so are educators. And I think the numbers of people at these trainings that I go to, everyone's quite hungry for it. So I think parents should continue to ask for it. And um, I, I do think the, uh, even speech and language. So the National Association for, um, Speech and language, I can't remember what their association is. It's a huge one. Asha. Uh, Asha, thank you. <laughs> and OTRL, the big, uh, the occupation. Oh, yes, the occupational therapist. So 
Team members on IEPs are getting this information and bringing it into schools too. So it's there's some momentum. Yeah, absolutely. There's another way too, and I, I experienced this through being behind the eight ball this year, is um, in Virginia, uh, a legislator, and I don't know who got um, brought it to him, brought a piece of legislation to get training, to require training for all educators about uh, to be sure that they had training on restraint and seclusion. Wow. So every educator that was going to be a teacher had to have that training. Now, there's no reason that we cannot uh, propose legislation that every every educator who's going to be licensed or who's going to get a degree in education mm. have training in brain science and neuroscience and regulation. Um, I tried to get that in at the last minute, but I was way too late. Um, but all of us from all across the country can bring similar bills. But you have to start now. You can't wait until the session, the, the legislature is in session. But if all of us would do that with our own legislations, legislations uh, across the country, um, there's some hope for that. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and an educator just kind of weighed in as well and said that uh, the that her idea was to. Uh, you know, have uh, after school virtual book studies where they read Mona mm -hmm. and Dr. Green's book. And I couldn't agree more. I think that's a fantastic mm -hmm. idea. Mm -hmm. um, but also, you know, I mean, when, you know, our, our group and our philosophy is, is collaboration between parents and, and educators. And, mm -hmm. you know, we can work together. We can work together in different ways. Uh, you know, in our county, when we were advocating for change related to restraint and seclusion, uh, we pushed very hard for uh, training in, in Dr. Green's model, the collaborative proactive solutions. And eventually we were, were successful in getting that training implemented. Um, so, you know, parents can have an influence and, and teachers as well, because we, we really do need to work together. If we can adopt these these idea these ideas and, and can be consistent between the home and school environment, we're even going to be more successful. So yes. absolutely where we can work together and book studies that included, you know, teachers and, and parents would be fantastic. Great idea. Yeah. And Mona created, Mona, you created a book study guide for parents. Oh yeah, I do. I have a I have a book study guide. Just email me if, uh, if you, I can send it out. I'd love to. Yeah, I have a book. Well, we can guide. include that in the resources. That's Ab great. Absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah. so I, I was going to allow time for one or two more questions if we have them, uh, and, and then wrap things up. But 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 I need to make sure that Beth doesn't have any questions because we we can't end this uh, <laughs> in the broadcast. If Beth has a question that uh, is burning, okay, I've been asking a mess. We go. <laughs> okay. Great. Great. Um, so, you know, we, we've gotten a lot of people commenting, a lot of people that really appreciate this approach. You know, certainly uh, there was a comment here about somebody having difficulty getting their IEP team to, um, you know, budge and um, certainly doing all that we can to, to try to do that. You know, sometimes it's involving an advocate or others to, to help. But, you know, some of us are we're in very different it's it's amazing how different things are in different areas of the country and even from you know county to county within a state so there's certainly certainly a lot of challenges out there uh, but this has really been a fantastic session and really appreciate your uh, you know what you what you brought in. What what I love about your book is it does something really important. I, I come from a science background and scientists aren't always the best communicators and sometimes we have this really fantastic information but it's yep. important to get it to people that can can use it in ways that are going to help with where they're going through and your ability to take things like the polyvagal theory and communicate that to to people like myself and others that are able to understand that and then use that information to hopefully help 
their children and their family members or, or others be more successful is really great. Um, so, you know, want want to thank you again for joining us today. Um, you know, we always find when we we share that, that you know information from you that really resonates with a, a lot of people in our audience. So, I want to see if you have any any final thoughts before we um, wrap things up. Well, thank you so much for having me on. I'm just I'm a huge fan of of what you guys are doing too. Just gathering people together and um, just having a, a, a space where it's um, where parents can can share and get um, support from each other. And so I'm just, you know, it's just a joy to be here to talk about these things. And um, I would just encourage parents and teachers and everybody to speak up um, and uh, collaborate with each other. And I think the, the more we can share this information across disciplines, um, there will be there will be consensus that's growing. And mm -hmm. I think we should look, mm -hmm. look towards uh, engaging each other rather than uh, having our, our own separate camps on this. Uh, there's positives to to everything, and we can we can come together for the sake of our children. So, absolutely, I do. And you know, guy, you're right. I always have one more thing to say. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I am <clears throat> Mona. There were several things you gave to me. <clears throat> um, I've made lots of mistakes with my kids and my granddaughter. And the thing I've gotten from you um, has been the, the compassion um, to be able to look at them and, and to realize that I was doing what I was guided to do. Um, and you have to look at what you did and, and recognize that you did the best you could when you did. And it was actually Denise, you quoted what she has said to me um, that, uh, it's a quote from Maya, Maya, Maya Angelou. I think I said that right. Um, you do the best you can until you know better. And then when you know better, you do better. And so I think one of, I've said many things about that I like about the way you teach is that you give us the grace to be able to stumble and make those mistakes and keep going without having to be defensive about the mistakes we've made. And and you also give us the grace to be able to work with people who are at a different place than we are, mm -hmm. and recognize that we've made different we've made mistakes, and we all are doing the best we can. Mm -hmm. So I'm very grateful for Absolutely. for all you do. Yeah, and 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 to to, to your point, Mona, I think the uh, you know working together. So excited to have the opportunity to to work with with people like yourself and Dr. Green and, you know, all towards this common goal. I, I agree with what you're saying. I think the more voices we have amplifying this, I want to thank everybody that that spent, you know, the last hour and a half or whatever it has been with us this afternoon and those that might watch it later, because you are people that have the ability to influence change. And I think mm -hmm. having having this growing audience of, of people that are that are very tuned into these things. You know, I think hopefully we cumulatively can work together and, and influence a positive change. So, again, I want to thank everybody. Uh, thank Mona, thank Beth, and thank everybody for watching. Have a quick announcement to make before we wrap things up formally. And that is, if you like this, there's more. Um, so uh, <laughs> next week, actually, we will be uh, featuring a presentation from Dr. Ross Green. Uh, he's going to be talking about moving from crisis management to true crisis prevention. Uh, again, talking about uh, some of his uh, books and research and the collaborative proctor solutions model. 
So there's more great stuff to look forward to. Uh, thank you again for being involved today. And uh, we look forward to seeing you again next time. So uh, thank you and stay tuned for, for more great stuff.